Welcome to Trans Chat, a place where trans, non-binary, and metagender folk talk about ourselves, our interests, and our community. Hey folks, as a heads up um, in regards to topic warnings, in today's discussion, we will have some brief mentions of sexual assault and child assault. Um, we will be discussing ACEs, which um, may be triggering for some of our audience who have experienced them. Um, we also discuss uh, an involuntarily or involuntary sterilization or against protest. And um, we discuss a lot of pain and medical dismissal of folks' uh, experiences. Hey folks, um, joining us on Trans Chat today is me, Una, uh, she, her, and... Hi, I'm Lisa. My pronouns are Z here. All right, cool. Today we've got um, kind of a heavy topic, but also, I don't know, uh, an incredibly important one. Uh, we're going to chat healthcare, um, and then some of it will be healthcare as chronic ills folk. Um, and some of it will be healthcare as trans folk, and then some of it will probably be the intersection of the two. Um, so I can think of a lot of places that I could we could go with this to start with. Did you have um, any stories that you wanted to share um, about your experiences, Lisa, kind of off the bat so we don't forget them or, or, or don't hit them up as we're going through uh, the episode today? Well, no, I'm like, I've had thousands of experiences. It's just where it's going to go. But I did want to start off by saying, because, you know, we weren't sure where to go with the intersection of, you know, chronic illness, chronic disability, chronic pain, and uh, being queer or trans is that like, one of the things I do, like in the organization I work for is I analyze stuff like ACE scores, childhood adversity scores, and the link between childhood adversity and adult chronic illness. And one of the things that we observe, like, hugely, hugely, is that if you have a higher childhood adversity score, which everyone who happens to be trans does with varying levels, is that you have higher levels of chronic pain. And we're not totally sure why that is, except that trauma changes your brain, but there may be other reasons for that too. And so there is a huge overlap um, between queer trans folks and adult chronic pain and childhood chronic pain for that much. Um, we should we should definitely put a link um, to ACEs. Uh, I know there's a TED talk that does a great um, breakdown that in some of my public health courses we watched as um, the speaker broke down um, the relationship between one or more experiences and then I think it was three or more experiences. Um, and did, did we break down that ACE stands for the Adverse Childhood Experiences? You yeah, I said that. Okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and oh my gosh, reading that list when I first was confronted with it, I was like, oh, hey, this list looks really familiar with some. Uh, has that been your experience as well? Yeah, but I'm extreme. I'm like, I had a yes. pretty extreme. I'm like, I'm, I'm an ace 10, you know, so 
most of the discussions are people who are four or higher. Like they always say that four or more. So I'm like, I don't know where that puts me being at a 10. But most, most people who would identify as being both chronically ill and trans probably fall somewhere between the three to seven range. So this is this is a good reason for parents that might be listening or loved ones um, to not misgender or dead name someone because that that it's a simple gesture. Um, I don't believe that's on um, the 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 ace list, but I imagine that that would fit between bullying from from authority figures or from from parents. Right, and it's not an exhaustive list of oh, adverse yes. childhood experiences by any means, you know. But what we see from it is that the way that trauma changes your brain can have very serious consequences and not just psychological, but physical consequences. So, yeah. yeah. Um, maybe, maybe, do you want to provide some thoughts to healthcare providers um, at the end of the, the recording session? Or maybe we can put it here in the front where uh, folks are more likely to, to catch it uh, rather than at the end of, of the episode. Well, we can also add it. We can add some resources. Um, no, let's let's circle back to that. Okay. Did you like? Did you want to say something? Um, I I did want to put a caveat that some of the personal experiences that might be shared uh, aren't necessarily representative of all trans experiences because this is something um, that we get some feedback. Uh, regarding the podcast and um of course we yeah. we can roll our eyes at the not all x um framing uh and, and defensiveness um so yes i'm sure that there are lovely physicians out there and lovely nurses and lovely receptionist folks um that have not contributed harm um in their practice uh maybe you can listen and um, learn how to help your colleagues in this case. Uh, well, what, we're, what we're talking about is a system. Yes, this is. And correct. that's the thing that, yeah, in as an individual, like, you might not participate in, but you, or you might not qualify necessarily, but you still participate in the system. And like an individual cannot change his system, but but we need to talk about that system. I I love how eloquent you you are compared to my stuttering. Thank the, you. The idea. I, I no, of course I don't want to offend anybody, but I also want to start talking about it. Oh, definitely. We can't even talk about it, you know. Like, yeah, we can't change anything if we don't say what the problem is. So I'm like, yes, yeah, so it's like it's impossible for me to. And call Talk a cat a cat and a dog a dog. And without offending someone, but, you know, it's like, all right, I'll, I'll take the heat, you know. So. Oh, well, no, I mean, that caveat is now so we can talk honestly about everything. Okay, if cool. If somebody <laughs> gets uh, offended, we'll be like, well, we did introduce the episode with this particular phrase. Uh, and I, I think, like, in terms of the overlap, again, with being trans, like, I have a million experiences I could say about being a full-time patient for the last few years. But the one that I, I think about the most when I think about being non-binary is having everything that can possibly go wrong with my reproductive system go wrong. And 
never ever being able to really come out even as intersex, let alone non-binary and not being able to transition either and just being misgendered like 300 times a day by healthcare workers. And that, that wears on you. Yeah. Um, there was, my mind. Um, did you want to share a, a specific instance that, um, the way you Wait, are, did you want to say something though? No. I was going to share something, but then I realized that I may have cut you off before you'd shared the experience. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead, okay. Luna. There, there's, uh, there's an advertisement that was used, um, by a company, um, trying to visually represent the effect that swearing has on human beings. And so they had a family sit uh, on a couch and get shot by paintballs. And it was something like 300 paintballs in a minute. Um, well, I think that that may be uh, a little bit uh, flowery and purple prose for the experience of being around swearing. Um, it might be a helpful visualization for being constantly dead named in a very vulnerable position. Um, it's not, it's not going to necessarily kill somebody to get hit with a paintball and they're just right there. But if you keep getting hit over and over and over and over again in the same areas, it, 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 it at least in my experience, it then becomes much more difficult than just a, a stray paper cut here and there or a stray getting hit in the face by a, a, a paintball gun. It sucks, but we'll survive. But then when it's happening all the time, it's a different beast. I, I don't know. If I wrapped that thought together very well. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of picture it as like just being reduced a little bit, like I lose an inch every time it happens. And that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. No, but I meant like, so I have, you know, all these uterine fibroids and then I have ovarian cysts. So I have like polycystic ovaries, which some people actually think that polycystic ovarian syndrome is a form of being intersex, which would actually make it not a women's issue at all, but it's seen as a women's issue and, you know, having reproductive issues like related to your uterus. So like, I have to go to lots of, you know, women's clinics. And when you walk into a woman's clinic, like you see all these signs everywhere that just talk about being a woman like over and over and over again. And when you try to research any of these illnesses, you find all these forums that go on and on about women's health and women, 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 women. And, and like when I was about to have my hysterectomy, like it was for health reasons, but it was also because I'm not a woman and I don't normally experience a lot of gender dysphoria, but I do when I menstruate or when I used to, cause I don't anymore. Um, but when I did it, it gave me massive, like, like, extremely painful, like bordering on suicidal, painful dysphoria to menstruate. And that was the main reason I wanted to get a hysterectomy. And I swear to God, every freaking Reddit forum, like, you know, every Facebook group just went on and on about like, getting a hysterectomy doesn't make you any less of a woman. And, and it was like, on the one hand, it was kind of nice to see that like, that like cis women actually experience their own form of dysphoria in a weird way, but also just like, you know, me saying I'm getting this surgery specifically because I want to be less of a woman and, and, and 
because I'm not a woman, you know, and all this stuff, like just constantly, constantly being reminded that like my health problems have somehow made me seem less of who I really am in the eyes of people all over the internet and the eyes of everybody else who has this stupid disorder, disorders, multiple disorders, you know, and in the eyes of all my healthcare providers, like that I have to be just constantly reminded that I'm not seen or perceived the way that I really am. I'm like, I don't think I've ever actually like talked about this before. So it's like, well, I mean, except in our group, I've talked about it in our group. But um, that's typing, not saying it out loud. So it's yeah, uh, it's vocalizing something has a different experience sometimes. Exactly. Um, yeah. More visceral in, in my experience. I don't know about yourself. But I mean, do you have anything? Have any experience like that? Um, saying something out loud? No, no. That like some of your health struggles. Oh yeah. Um, add into my, like euphoria. My nerve damage um extends into my genitalia and um for the first five or six years um where it was really bad uh it was very similar to constantly getting kicked in the testicles because of the way that the nerve damage was um or the way my brain was interpreting the signals and um seeking treatment for that was incredibly gendered. And when I started to unpack uh, my identity more, because I, I was later in life when I was able to have that conversation with myself that didn't end, um, uh, you know, kind of on the brink of suicide. And I, I think that was a little bit mentioned when I talked about the religious experiences. Um, but it became very hard. Like I almost didn't want to seek care for the first year after I came out um, because I was, I was dealing with lots of ultrasounds in that area. Um, not quite the same degree of rhetoric that you experience, but there is like, I was given pamphlet, um, when I, uh, got the orchiectomy about how the orchiectomy doesn't make you less of a man. And I was like, well, that's not really like, why did you give this to me? You, you, you knew that uh, part of me getting this was because of my identity. And, and yet after the surgery, you presented me with this, this um, something that I imagine would be quite helpful for a lot of folks getting that surgery, but not relevant. Um, I remember being very frustrated about that. And then when I went in because I was having complications I feel that the way I was treated uh, was also in part because of, of identity uh, and, and not so much um, those parts being removed in the actual surgery. Uh, but I think I'm rambling at this point. No, but that's um, another can of worms about the overlap between trans issues and, and disability is the yeah. way that I mean, I've had, I've had folks treat me very wait, differently. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Can I just say one thing about oh, what you said you. earlier? That like, can we just pause for a minute and talk about how like cis people will say that your gender is defined by what's in your pants, but then give us pamphlets saying having the surgery doesn't make you less of a woman or man. Like, yeah, it's 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 like if you you know how to divorce genitalia from gender. We've just seen it. So why can't you divorce genitalia from gender? 
in all other instances that are as equally valid um, sort of thing. Uh, and that you just express some dismay that you feel like less of a man or less of a woman. But when we say, you know, like, I don't. Yeah, well, as you were as you were talking about, you know, the rhetoric you were saying, it was making me think of I have friends who have had um, uh, breast reduction or removal for uh, identity uh, purposes. And I have friends who have had breast reduction or removal um, for health related reasons and um, seeing the posting and the rhetoric and and the one time that those two friend sets intersected was was very awkward um, because they they could recognize that I'm still who I am without these parts but they couldn't recognize the other individual as being who they were with or without those I, I no, that's exactly what I'm trying I mean, to piggyback yeah. on what you said, and I'm doing a poor job because you said it very well. Um, <laughs> All right, but but go ahead. I just wanted. I was like, can we just pause for a second and? Yeah, no, I think that's quite important. Be like cis people, like, come on, guys. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> uh, I actually, as we're talking about this, I think the next time I have a relative that I think is sincerely trying to figure out and understand dysphoria that I'm going to, I'm going to take that route and be like, look, um, y'all recognize that reconstructive surgery for somebody who's, um, had their breast removed against their desire because of, of, um, health reasons, you recognize that this is a valid health procedure, right? It helps somebody feel complete again. Um, so maybe blink your eyes and apply that same, that same logic to your trans mask kiddo or what have you. But you were, we were about to go into how we're treated differently for identity and the oh, overlap. Yeah, definitely. I've had nurses that have treated me one way because they didn't believe my pain. And that's frustrating. It's more frustrating to have the nurse that is very hello, sweetie, um, very kind, uh, except for when it comes to a dead name or uh, misgendering me. Um, and like, even though the two would seem about on par, uh, I definitely always felt less safe being wheeled back to be put under mm. by uh, an anesthesiologist assistant who just couldn't remember, as she put it, my actual name and my actual uh, pronouns. Like, it's different. Um, and, and now that I'm thinking about it, in fact, uh, these were two different sets of experiences at the same type of health procedure that I was getting. And I never once, um, when someone's like, oh, you know, you can walk. And I'm like, oh, no, I can't. You're going to have to wheel me back there. Um, that's an awkward, squishy set of feelings i never thought that i wasn't going to wake up though or i never thought there was going to be an issue um i've almost been killed by uh, a nurse at an er for giving me something i was allergic to that i had told a bunch of people i was allergic to and that felt different than finding out that the er um nurse or physician i don't know which um, irresponsibly prescribed me stuff that uh, 
caused me um, intense pain um, and uh, brought me closer to suicide than I had been for a decade before then. Um, they gave me medicine that uh, in conjunction with mine prevented dopamine from binding and serotonin and something else. And when my physician read the ER report, she got angry and said it was irresponsible and um, whatnot, but there was no recourse. Like I went in, I was treated differently, quite likely um, based on the conversation I had with the nurse because of my, my gender identity and they had a problem with it. And I was treated with something that um, wasn't intended for the situation I had gone in for. And they already treated what I had gone in for and they added an additional thing um, sorry, I got rambly. No, no, no. I think that there's a juxtaposition there, though. Now, when I consider going to the ER, I, I would rather just die at home. I don't want to go in and have that experience again. <laughs> sorry, I, I'm not laughing at you. No, I'm you just can grok it. I think because I really, I feel the same way. Yeah, I'm like so rather die at home than in the ER. Yeah. At least my, well, um, I also have fears of dying in a place where I'm going to be dead named in my obituary sort of thing. Um, it looks like there might be some shared. No, I'm just like, that's heavy, man. Yeah. Um, no, when you were talking, I, I was just thinking I went through this phase where, so I've been sick my whole life, but I didn't always know it because I had extreme neglect growing up you know and that's that's actually kind of a different story for a different podcast we can come back to that but you know I'm like that's kind of a different story for a different podcast but I first became like a full-time patient in 2016 about five years ago like end end of 2016 beginning of 2017 and I thought because I had this idea of like well, doctors are sexist. So like I hadn't gotten to like doctors are homophobic and transphobic, which, you know, and racist, but I'm like, that doesn't apply to me because even though I'm not completely ethnically white, I look very white. But because I look like a woman, I was like, that's what I need to worry about right now. So I'm just going to see female doctors. And because I have these you know, issues related to menstrual stuff. I mean, I had lots of other stuff going on, but that was one of the things that I was like, okay, maybe if I see female doctors, they'll take me more seriously because I had seen doctors that hadn't taken me seriously. And I mean, I can give you one example from my childhood that I started having chronic UTIs and, you know, gastrointestinal issues as a little, little child and huge like immune problems. And my physician was like, well, it's totally normal for you to have extreme cramping and burning every time you urinate and yeah <laughs> which like okay i was also being sexually abused so like we can just put that wherever that falls you know i don't think that's what was causing i mean like i know my okay we're gonna have to add a trigger warning for this but like my parents gave me an std when i was a kid like her like herpes or something and um but like, I also had these chronic UTIs from, you know, my endocrine problems because I was born with a brain tumor. I didn't know I had a cyst, brain cyst, developed the tumor later. 
I just went off on a huge tangent. I forgot what I was doing. Oh, that I was going to see female doctors, yeah, with the hopes that I would be taken seriously. But actually, like, the female doctors were in my completely anecdotal, empirical experience, they were even more dismissive than the male doctors had been up until that point. Like, my GP was like, so I was like, okay, I can't get out of bed. I spent 20 hours a day in bed because I'm so fatigued. And she was like, well, that's depression. So let's give you some antidepressants. And I was like, no, I've, I've had depression. I know what it feels like. This isn't that this is something else, you know, and I'm not opposed to taking medication. Like that's not what's happening here. I just, I know what depression feels like. And this is something else. And she was like, yeah, no, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. And and then I added, oh, and, and by the way, everything that I eat comes out of one or both ends of me. And, and she was like, okay, well, antidepressants will work for that too, you know. And <laughs> there's like this protocol for treating, you know, IBS is to give you antidepressants, you know, to whatever. And, and then I tried seeing this like OBGYN who, when I was like, I have this pain that's like easily a nine on a scale like it's more painful than breaking bones and it's more painful than getting a tattoo and like more painful than a migraine, like two or three times more painful than a migraine, this pain I get in my uterus when I have these cramps. And she was like, all right, well, we'll just give you some birth control and send you on your merry way. And she was like, and then, you know, found out later that I had uterine fibroids and I had ovarian cysts and all this other stuff going on. And, but these were all female doctors that I was seeing, you know, and, and so the reason that I, I like to say that it's not just an individual problem, although sometimes it is, but that it's a systemic problem is like, okay, women can be just as dismissive. And when I started trying to come out to my healthcare providers, and now for the most part, I don't even come out. I just stay closeted, which is like when you were talking about, I was like, wow, at least Luna like is brave enough to... I mean, I'm not saying your struggles aren't serious. That's not what I mean. I'm, I'm like, I admire the fact that you even try to hold true to your identity when you see healthcare providers. Cause I'm like, I don't even bother coming out anymore. I'm just like, if I say this, their, their face changes and their body language changes. And it's like, all of a sudden I'm this like hypochondriac crazy person you know, instead of like, I'm a serious, like I have a degree and I have a master's degree in science and, and I know how to read medical journals and stuff because, because of my education that, yeah, will be taken not at all seriously. And, and it's not just about being trans for me. It's that I have this history of mental illness and like an addiction. I'm like, I don't mention that anymore either, because if I do, they immediately go to it's psychological, it's not real. And so like my OGP found like I have this elevated white blood cell count, which was because of having a brain tumor among other things. But then she sent me to see a hematologist and I was like, okay, at least that's something. But then the hematologist was like, okay, no, this is what happened with the, <laughs> do you watch sex in the city? No. I'm sorry. I'm like, you were like, I'm rambling. No, I'm rambling now, but I'm like, I, 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 I think it's all relevant. Um, and uh, I, I think that, after you're done sharing this, uh, it'll be important for us to talk about that dismissal because um, I know, ex like, as you're talking about these things, I haven't experienced them quite the same way. But when I first see a specialist, 
how much I share about my personal uh, medical history depends on how I see them responding to me. And I've had, I've had as soon as I've come out to a physician, their entire tone change and mm -hmm. gone from taking me seriously to um, being willing to look for the lowest hanging fruit and then pass me off. Um, but go ahead and finish um, what, what you were going to share. Yeah, so there's this episode where, like, Miranda goes to a, a sonogram to see her baby and she doesn't get excited, so she pretends to be excited. She says, I faked a sonogram today. And so, like, when I saw this hematologist, she did some tests and she was like, so there's absolutely nothing wrong with you, so I think we should go back to looking at this is just depression. And I was like, like, I looked at her not happy. <laughs> essentially. And she was like, Hey, I don't get to give good news very often. Like you should be happy. And so I, and I pretended to be happy. And then I was like, wow, I faked a hematology appointment today because you just told me that I was crazy. And I know that there's something else going on here. You know, I know that it's not just depression and that's why I have this elevated white blood cell count. But, you know, even that GP, like when I finally did get that diagnosis I thought okay if I go back now and I'm like here's the report from the neurosurgeon that says I have this like super rare type of brain tumor too well we didn't know about the second one then like she's finally gonna take me seriously and that still wasn't the case she was like well you know it'll probably help if you lose some weight and exercise and and I was like, no, but in that moment, I was like, okay, this really isn't about what it is or about me. It's, it's about the way that this person, um, I don't know. It, it's not about, yeah, it's about who she is or how she views the world or whatever. And, and, and I'm just gonna keep going. And if a doctor doesn't take me seriously or rolls their eyes or like, doesn't listen to me, then I just fire them on the spot and I keep looking for another provider that will take me seriously so I don't have to fight, you know, tooth and nail to be heard. And, and I think that maybe somebody listening to that will be like, well, cool, you, you're able to fire someone on the spot sort of thing. I, I know not everyone can do that. No. But they're probably not thinking about the, the process of you trying to find a physician that is qualified to, to assist you. And well, and the, I know that, that depends on the country too. Like the NHS, that like the NHS doesn't let you do that. Like they tell you who to see, and you have to see that person. Like, um, but I don't know that that's necessarily any better for you. Is what I was I was trying to get at. Like, there's a whole oh, I'm sorry. finding new um, new physicians or new specialists, and once once you've interacted with somebody in a practice, I don't know about your experience, but. Um, whatever that first physician's impressions and notes and decisions um, usually get followed up even if you change who you're seeing um, that's been my experience mm -hmm. with endocrinologists that's yeah. been my experience with gastroenterologists mm -hmm. um, and even if the person is trans doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to take you seriously um, i was quite shocked with a trans physician that i interacted with and just how much what i was having um, no. Okay, that is a whole. Okay, I'm sorry. Tell me the story. Yeah. Well, no, no. I, I think uh, it, it wasn't. It wasn't very bad. Um, 
they were dismissing my pain because they didn't think it was possible. And I, I just, I love that That's one. bad. No, that is bad, Luna. Like, that is really bad. <laughs> so, and, and, but I, I do like how you said, like, you've had tattoos, you've had migraines, you, you know what these painful things are. Um, and physicians just don't, like, I, I've started when I have to do the pain scale, which is ridiculous. They need something better than the 1 to 10 pain scale. Um, is, is I'll let them know I'm at an eight and a seven is if I was stepping on a nail right now. And then that'll mm. sometimes get them a little bit, you know, different. I'll be like, look, I passed a kidney stone on a date and then went out to dinner afterwards. I, I know what pain feels like. <laughs> Please take me seriously. Um, which I, I like you, you grok these things. Um, but our listeners may be listening and be like, what, this is healthcare in the U S yes, this is healthcare in the U S. Um, but it's also healthcare outside oh, the U.S. Like yes, that's why is. I mentioned the NHS has its own. Um, yeah, it, well, and their capitation system does incentivize, um, like, I, I don't know if they're considered GPs or, or primary care, but to see you less, right, because they get paid a set amount. Um, we, we did health system studies uh, in my ma master's of public health program, and that was one of the, the things that we were looking at is how um, uh, – maladaptive approaches to incentives work in healthcare, And that was one of the things that um, we looked at. I don't know, you know, if that data is still accurate to how things are now. Um, well, and I, I just, because I've lived in multiple countries as an adult, that I'm like, I, okay, there are things that are way, way better in some of the other places I've lived. Like, I'm like, I, I, I have a list in my head. And so I'm like, of all the countries I've lived in, I would say the Netherlands is the best, but there are issues with it. But like a lot of people look at Germany as this like, you know, whatever, Mecca. But the thing about, and, and it is in the sense of you can get access to healthcare, like, and it's not for profit, but it isn't in the sense that like, um, doctors were very dismissive with me, first of all. And second of all, that they always wanted to take like the absolute most cautious approach. Like we would rather give you this pill that will like reduce your infection 1% for a hundred days than give you one shot that'll reduce it a hundred percent right now. Do you know what I mean? Okay. That isn't anything in particular, but no, no, I, I totally, yeah understand and, what I'm and saying. As somebody who has to go through the pain of an infection using your analogy for a hundred days, those are two very different treatment options. Yeah. Um, okay. You got it. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm like, there are, there are issues being a sick person in Germany too, you know? Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I think that, I mean, it's, it's a, probably a universal human experience is those that don't get sick very often just cannot understand what it's like to constantly be sick or to, to, to be chronically um, uh, sick or to be disabled. I mean, it, it's hard to grok unless you're, you're experiencing it. And unfortunately, really sick people don't generally get through medical school so that they can treat folks. They, they tend to be healthier folks. It's not Healthy. always the case. Um, but like when I've chatted with someone and they're telling me they couldn't imagine the pain of a tattoo and they're telling me that my pain isn't very bad in the lower half of my body it's like okay well maybe maybe physicians need to experience a little bit of pain 
for them. To, I'm not saying like shoot a physician. So they don't no, like, no, maybe right. You know, like seeing the way people have res- healthy people have responded to COVID, and I'm like, that's like one person, not even one percent of what having chronic fatigue is like. But being forced to stay home all day and having to yeah. lose money and lose your business, like. <sighs> That's very true. Um, and, and then, you know, folks like us kind of have a choice is um, how, how, I can't think of a better word of blase. Do we respond to what is like yeah. the 100th of our everyday experience? Yeah. Because, like, I want to have compassion, but at the same time, it's like, we told you so. Now you know a little bit. <laughs> Oh, now you believe long COVID is real, but like with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, it was all in our heads. Like, yeah. Um. Oh, I have I have a question um, that if you have an answer will benefit me, if not listeners. Um, have you found any secret sauces to be taken more seriously other than hiding oneself, which I totally like, I, I do that for one-shot specialists often myself is I, I won't use my dead name, but I won't, you know, I'll just go in. Um, I, I, I dress more gender neutral if I have an appointment yeah. with someone that I've never met before. Um, so I, I wanted to make sure that like any thoughts that you have of me being brave are, are uh, uh, properly contextualized. <laughs> No, that's why I was like, I don't even know if I should say that, but I, I just, no, I just mean like, it sucks that we have to even have this conversation, you know, like we should be able to just be taken seriously the way that we are, you know, but wait, when you say that, do you mean in terms of being trans or, Um, or or in terms of in general? secret sauce suggestion that I have found somewhat successful. I was just curious if you had any others. What, that you dress gender neutral? No, or was there no, some- I, I started um, making physicians um, provide annotations in my medical records for why they mm-hmm. were taking my symptoms seriously or why okay. they were choosing um, this low-hanging fruit when I've had probably... 25 or more um, ultrasounds just in the past 10 years and 25 or more CT scans and all of these things like making them document why we're repeating something um, has been beneficial for me in getting them to be like oh well you know what maybe maybe we won't do the CT scan again Um, that's a really good idea I haven't thought of that that's an excellent suggestion well and so I, I got the suggestion from women of color who deal with dismissed mm. a ton. Um, with William, yeah, we haven't really talked about that enough. Um, yeah, like I, I, I can't think of anybody that I know that's comfortable with the podcast that might be able to speak to some of those those questions. Um, however, if there is somebody who would love to share their experiences, um, send us an email at transchat. Trans chat 
Um, the A is an A, ah, not an A ah in this case, um, at genderfreedomsociety.org. And um, we would love to chat with you uh, if you feel comfortable sharing those experiences. It's hard. No, I, I, I mentioned that because it's important for me to say, like, sometimes I, because I'm, I am a multiply marginalized person, I forget that, like, I'm white first, you know, and that, and the doors that that opens for me, like, even having everything else. And so the people who are trans and black or indigenous or, you know, fill in the blank. It's like, yeah, that's a whole other level of not being taken seriously. But to answer your question, I'm like, I mean, the main thing I do is that if a doctor doesn't take me seriously, I stop seeing them. But that isn't always an option. And it's not always something that happens right away. I mean, it usually is, but once in a while, it kind of reveals itself over time. But what I used to do was I would have a full list of symptoms and any providers I had seen, providers that were going to be useful, not ones that were going to say, oh yeah, Lisa's lying. But, you know, and, and a timeline and all that stuff. And I would use really complex medical language and I would say, oh, I have a graduate degree in science, which would tend to make people take me a little more seriously. But I also found that that can backfire that when I, I mean, it's only happened a couple of times, but that when I show up with this big long list, then that makes them think that I'm a hypochondriac. Yeah, can't, can't win, right? In, in, in <laughs> a situation. Uh, oh, I hate that word. I learned that word in um, third grade um, because my teacher wanted me to know how to spell the word because it was a word that described me. Um, I'm sorry. No, no, I mean, like, it's it's one of those, like, hilarious I just made my cat later, and I wish I could <laughs> chat with that teacher and be like, look, uh, the pain I was experiencing that I was trying to express to you were due to X, Y, Z, um, you know, and then flip them off sort of thing. Well, and the thing is, okay, there's a few things about that. The, the first thing is that I was actually grateful when I started getting called a hypochondriac because as a child, I had been called um, a malingerer, like someone who had Munchausen, which is even worse, like saying you want to be sick because someone with hypochondria at least doesn't want to be sick. They're afraid of being sick. So I'm like, that's like layers upon layers of how gross that is that I was grateful to be called a hypochondriac. But the other thing is that most disabled people really, really underestimate how sick they are yeah. rather than the other way around. And they really downplay it to make healthy people comfortable rather than upplaying it. So, so there's that. Okay. Um, and I, I forgot what I was going to say about, yeah, just that I, I tried to come at it from the perspective of I'm looking at this as a scientist. And that tends to help. But I also find that if a doctor is going to take me seriously, they tend to just work with me. Like my current immunologist, who's amazing. And, and I should say that when I'm like, the system is awful. I'm like, I do have specialists now who are like amazing and, and great, you know, but it took me a while to find them. Right. But my immunologist now, I, you know, I, I try to feel people out. So I came in and I was like, Hey, I read about 
you know, I got diagnosed with this other thing and I read about this medication and she was like, well, who told you about that medication? And I was like, well, honestly, nobody did. I read about it in a medical journal. And she was like, and then I was like, I know that offends doctors sometimes. And she was like, no, no, no. Like I want to work with you. You know, if we can, it helps if you research your condition, because then I can share my knowledge and you can share your knowledge. And so I'm like, that's a good physician right there. Like that's, that's really the best advice that I can give is to find a doctor who is going to work with you but that isn't always possible so i'm like that's not necessarily helpful advice if you can't find a doctor like that or if a doctor pretends to say that and then actually writes something totally different in their notes have you yeah. have you ever um had to deal with that um where you're told one thing and then you later find out what was put into your mouth yeah it's gotten to the point where for a while I used to request a printout of not just the summary that you usually get like that, that one page that they print out that's uh, most relevant. Like it might be, this is what influenza is, or this might be this thing. Or in my case, it's always, you need to lose weight. And I'm like, um, nerve damage, please tell that to me again um, with a straight face, please. Uh <laughs> and people say that to like, like I said, my GP said that even when I had been diagnosed with a brain tumor, she told me to lose weight. And when I had said I can't exercise because I have osteoporosis and muscle atrophy and chronic fatigue and like, and it's not that I'm not motivated. I used to be a triathlete. I was in the Olympics when I was younger and she still told me to lose weight. So I'm like, okay. Yeah, and I'm not even like, I mean, oh, no. Like, like there's no such thing as like overweight because sizeism is a whole other issue but i mean i'm saying you can't win yeah when it comes to that like the doctors just want to say you should lose weight you know i mean it's, it's it's a very easy way to collect money for an appointment right is to hand somebody a stack of of weight loss things um so one thing that uh uh and i share that irritation because like i'm in the wheelchair yes i can work some of my upper body but uh that also causes I, I now my hands burn um from the nerve damage and so grasping the wheelchair um can be painful um sorry i i like i i grok this whole wanting to shake a physician and be like look <laughs> please use your brain um so you've talked about access to specialists i don't know um what your healthcare situation is um as uh, for me, I am I am Medicare and Medicaid, and and that's the what what I'm lucky is when I can find a specialist that takes one or the other, um, and that's another uh, thing that I think folks that aren't um, you know super aware uh, of what it's like to be sick or to be seeking healthcare um, if you're if you're queer or trans. Um, is that I mean a lot of folks that I know that are queer and trans are in similar situations. They're on they're on Medicare or they're on Medicaid. Yeah. And um, you know you you may hear a lot of um, political talking points about whether or not um, hormones is going to be covered by Medicare or Medicaid, um, and it makes it sound like those things are accessible to us uh, more so than they are, just because something is ostensibly covered. <laughs> Uh, by one's health insurance, there's still a, a, a fight um, that can occur. Um, I don't know if, if, if you have any experiences related to that that you would like to share. I have um, <laughs> somewhat humorous, depending on how I tell the story, but is also, I think, illustrative of 
the hoops that one jumps through. Um, but if you have thoughts, please share them with us. Okay, so first of all, that's one of the things I go to Latin America to buy is hormones. Okay. Um, but because my endocrine system is such a like post-apocalyptic wasteland, I like I can't <laughs> transition. Like I can't take hormones um, for identity purposes, and actually, I'm not even sure how I would want to because like I'm allergic so I, my body doesn't produce estrogen to begin with I'm like but I'm intersex so like that's what that's about tons of testosterone <laughs> but I'm allergic to progesterone and so like and, and like severely allergic to progesterone so my main issue is trying to find something that will block progesterone and which is like impossible and now I can't buy it in Latin America anymore either because it's used to induce abortion. Right, yeah. So I'm like, there's only like two places in the world that I can still buy this medication and right now I can't even buy it. That's like India and Pakistan and it's not even working there either. So we're looking at alternatives, but, um, but yeah, there's this combination of like, Of, of yeah institutional misogyny that someone with a uterus in my case not a woman but a person who has a uterus and doesn't anymore but still has periods like because i still have my ovaries which we're gonna have to take those out too is for having children you know and so anything that will down even if in my case, it's like so that I can get out of bed because that's how severe my allergy to progesterone is that it makes me bedridden, among other things, but that's the main thing it does. That no one will give it to me anywhere in the world, like not even, and I've looked, I mean, I've scoured the corners of the earth to like find medication to block progesterone and it just ain't happening. And so I'm like, I haven't even, dip my toes into trying to get any kind of medication for gender purposes. And like I said, I'm not even sure if I would like what I want to take estrogen because I don't even have any, but that would make me look more female or would I want to take testosterone, but I'm like, I don't feel like a, I don't feel male either because I'm non-binary. So I'm like, I, I have no idea. Yeah. I think I think that brings up, um, you know, something that I think folks aren't aren't super aware of when they hear HRT, is it's not it's not necessarily testosterone, it's not necessarily estrogen. Um, for non-binary folks, they may want to masculize some. Is that a word? I know what you mean. <laughs> okay, good. That, you know, that's what that's the purpose of words, right? Is to convey ideas. So if I'm close enough. Um, and it may be just for a period of time and they may alternate between or they may just want a t-blocker or, or um, you know some of these different things and it's not as easy as one or the other um, and not all identities will benefit from one or the other or even you know combinations of both and then there's low dosing and so it's I think folks often because we're so trained to think in binaries it's like okay um, a trans person wants X or Y, and those are the two things that they, they may be interested in or may help them. But sometimes it's uh, Z and Q, or, you know, different different options or, or dosing. And 
um, balancing that can be quite hard. Um, that was more of what you said prompted me thinking those things that would be relevant to the podcast, not like directed at, at, at you. I don't know. If that's... Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I assume that you have some. Oh, and to answer your question, I'm, I'm on Obamacare because California never got rid of the ACA. Okay. Like, I know a lot of other states did but california has covered california so that's what i'm well and that, that that's that's good right to a point yeah i mean um it's kind of like compared with that is the one way in which compared with like the netherlands and germany it's it's very dystopian for me but oh, yeah. Because, like, like in the Netherlands, like, I could go see a GP without insurance for 26 euros, which is, like, 30 bucks, you know. And which honestly, like, that's the most it would ever, like, a CT scan would be, like, $15 without insurance. Yeah. Um, to think of how many times we uh, emptied our savings and how many times we went a couple of grand in debt for just a single CT or uh, an ambulance ride. It's, it's infuriating. Um, sorry, that was a little tidbit for me because <laughs> $26 for a CT skin or ho however much you said, or euros, so. But something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, like less than $100. Pocket, uh, like lunch money, you know. Yeah. Um, so my experience accessing HRT recently has been a little bit um, interesting. My insurance won't cover any form of HRT that's not a vaginal suppository. Um, when my wife called them and said, so um, yeah, your, your person that you're covering doesn't have the parts to use the only thing that you're saying you're covering. So like, you're gonna have to cover a different form. Um, how do we do this? Uh, how long was it, honey? Like two months before we finally got them to be like, okay, we'll, we'll cover it. And everybody she talked to just made it seem like it was this ridiculous idea that there might be somebody who needs estrogen that can't use a vaginal suppository. And um, my physician tried to get involved and it was just ridiculous. So I went um, a couple of... Uh, patch cycles without access to estrogen and um we'll find out i think next month if we're gonna have the problem again and it's just it's ridiculous <laughs> to be told by somebody on the phone hey uh we can't cover what you what you're prescribed because you don't have the body parts and i know that this is like a small example of, of what folks go yeah through. um Let's let's just like add that to our if we have any cis listeners like yeah well and and, and that's the thing is like all of my friends and family that were hearing the story unfold because I was trying to put a funny spin on it you know on Facebook and whatnot um, they just found this so inconceivable and I'm like this is my siblings' experiences every time they go. And I am laughing. I'm like, that is funny. Because, I mean, it's not funny, oh, yeah, but no, like, but like, no, I, I, I think like if if we were watching a sitcom, that's our daily reality. And say, uh, they won't. They, they sent me vaginal suppositories. What am I supposed to do with these? And they won't cover my medicine. Like, it would be funny. 
Um, I do not see the irony of what you just oh, exactly right like and and i i listened because i i was so done with it um because it's misgendering and dead name like giving you the pamphlet about how the thing you makes doesn't make you less of a man and you're like well that's cool because i'm not a man so um <laughs> you're right you couldn't make me any less of a man because there's no <laughs> man there to begin with sort of thing i'm um, on the flip side though uh um you you talked a little bit about how ridiculous um the idea of of healthcare built on the assumption that women are going to want to have children or people with uteruses are going to want to have children or people with ovaries are going to want to have children um the first time i discussed an orchiectomy to reduce my nerve damage i'd had three children and my physician had said no you may want more children someday we won't do this until you hit 30. And um, I don't know if that was an arbitrary number. I don't know what was going on, but um, I found that super ridiculous as at the time, somebody who had never been told that my healthcare was determined by reproductive decisions made by some physicians or some politician somewhere. Um, mm. And so like, I, I wanted to, to touch on how that is that is a ridiculous artifact in in our medicine. Um, my my wife wanted a certain form of birth control after we've had three kids, and that was not approved because of how um, I don't even honey. Do you remember what the physician said? Which form of control? I don't remember. At one point, we were looking at getting a vasectomy for me, and um, your tube's tied, and they're like, no, we're not going to do this until you're a certain age, because you might regret it. Yeah. Um, and, and that was with both people in the partnership being like, yo, let's do this. Um, and with three kids already. Exactly. Um, I mean, I guess, uh, honey, do you think it would be appropriate to share your mom's experience? Yeah. So um, my spouse's mother was sterilized against her will. Um, and this was in the late 80s in Texas. Um, she is uh, Hispanic. And yeah. um, after her third um, child, they said, well, you're having too many children in effect. And um, she didn't have can i hop on and tell the yeah that would be more okay. appropriate um so we're gonna have the relative are are you able to hear this story lisa do you think yeah i'm just like that's i mean you know that you know what that is like that's genus that's genocide yeah it's, like, oh, it's eugenics it's it's horrifying yeah. all right so here i'm gonna go ahead and take the mic honey okay hello um so what happened is after my mom had me and this was her third child um using the public hospital and she would go to the public hospital because she couldn't pay any other way and the public hospital would have to take her because um parkland hospital in dallas and after her third one my mom's mother so my grandmother told her you can't have any more children or i'm not going to help you anymore and so my mom, even though she had agreed, yes, okay, I want a um, tubal ligation, let's do this. 
as she was going in, they were about to wheel her in. She was like, I don't want to do this. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to do this. And they're like, well, too late now, honey. And, and she'd and been pressured in by the physician. Oh so, yes, yeah, she did sign the consent forms, but she verbally mm. said, hey, I don't want to do this. No, I don't. And they were like, oh, too late. Um, hearing her mom tell the story, um, and in this case, her, her mom wanted to have more kids um, eventually. And um, I'm not a... I think that my in-laws would rather me be dead, um, in part because they've poisoned me intentionally a couple of times, but I still find this story horrifying, um, that, that this would happen to another human being. And it breaks my heart thinking about what she would have gone through, even though her and I are not in a good place sort of thing, um, which shouldn't matter in this story. Yeah, it, it's not, I mean, that does matter for you and for other issues that we can come back to, but yeah, no, the whole thing what was done to her, it doesn't matter what kind of a person someone is. Exactly. And, you know, this happens to gender non-conforming people and um, trans folks uh, in, in scary ways. And for yeah. minorities, I mean, in the 80s, and this still happens in prisons in many places, there's an incentive to get yeah, sterilized. Well, yeah, I mean, you know about like the the forced hysterectomies at the border in the border camps like, which is yeah it's, genocide like, yeah it's it's horrifying it's um <clears throat> yeah i mean it's 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 crimes against humanity it's it's genocidal <clears throat> acts um i don't know what my metaphysics are right now but um i i i hold on to that there, there's got to be some form of karma um, no i i believe that I mean, I don't know what it is, but I absolutely believe that there will be consequences of some kind. I think that, you know, I feel like people are starting to come around to the idea of like, you know, if we say things like ACAB, you know, that we can kind of start to take a sort of similar attitude towards um, the medical industry that they're, that, a lot of people really deify doctors, yeah. you know, and, and to realize that not only are all individuals fallible and have their own prejudices and biases and all that stuff, but that like the system itself can be extremely flawed and, and, um, and wrong all the time, you know, that sometimes <laughs> we that we really are the best judges usually of how much pain we're in and, and even then i'm like that's usually not true because we're usually downplaying it because we're so used to being in pain that we that if like a healthy person experienced it you know it, they would perceive it as actually much worse than we're perceiving it to be and that if you're not disabled or or i don't want to say like less disabled but I, but have have a disability that doesn't interfere with your life as much. I guess um, the best thing that you can really do is is to listen to us above medical professionals. And this idea of like, you know, all those memes like don't confuse your 
Google search with my medical degree. Like that's not what's happening right now. Like we're not saying I don't believe in vaccines because I've done my own research. Like that's not what's happening with this, like people with nerve pain saying I'm in pain, even though the doctor says I'm not, that's, it's like, we're talking about our own lived experiences. And no, that was was basically. There's, There's a very big difference between Karen spending an hour in an echo chamber on Google and somebody that knows how to read a scientific journal or a medical journal, um, like Lisa, um, that can break it down. And you know, honestly, I don't want to disparage physicians, but having gone through, um, a graduate degree in public health and seeing, um, what, I mean, some of the things that we looked at were holes in physicians, um, training. And one of that is statistics. A lot of physicians aren't able to actually look at a medical journal, for example, and break down the efficacy of something. They're, they're calculus literate, but not, um, statistics literate. Um, so that there are instances where, you know, not just the empirical experiences, but somebody may, you know, be a little bit more tapped into um, that literature and be able to make suggestions um, that are relevant to their health and should be taken seriously. But even for someone who's not, you know, no, and I, yeah, yeah. that's actually really helpful. I was like, maybe I should say I'm a statistician now when I go to see um, doctors. But even for someone who isn't, you know, well, and and um, I have a relative that is a physician um, that does not believe that transgender people are real or valid, and they went through medical school. Uh, so, like, that's another example of how how the system itself is 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 built with these flaws. I mean, we could also go on about how the system was built using white male test subjects. Um, and then extrapolated to apply to everybody else, which doesn't work. Like, that's not how biology works, folks. Oh, just one sec, baby bear. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much for, for chatting with us, Lisa, and for chatting with me. It's fun chatting with you. Um, it was a really heavy set of topics today. Um, it's always heavy. <laughs> so, so we'll have to do a lighter one.